digging in the dirt. I'm digging in the dirt. This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, climate change, farming, gardening, and food. My guests this afternoon on Digging in the Dirt is Frank Mortimer. Frank the Bee Man, as he's known. Frank has written a new book entitled Bee People and the Bugs They Love. It's on Citadel Press. Welcome, Frank, and congrats on publishing the new book. Uh, thank you so much, Kevin. Thanks for having me on your show. No problem. You know, this seems to be a very personal book about your journey to becoming a bee person. It's a book about beekeepers first and foremost, I think. And then you tell the story of bees through the trials and tribulations of their friends, these bee people, that you're one of them. Am I right? Yes. I. Um, it, it's like I, I. there's so many stories to tell about the people that keep bees. But then along the way, I sneak in a lot of facts and uh, information about about bees as well. Yes, you do. It's, the book is loaded with stuff. It's got a great glossary, folks, and a great uh, reading list that you can pick on, too. And then he goes through some of the mistakes that he made as well. So we'll, we'll get to some of that now. Uh, what is it that you hope the reader takes away from your book the most? That's a great question, Kevin. I, I think that... Um, the number one thing is how I always wanted to be part of a group. I wanted to find a place where I belonged. And so once I found beekeeping, that's where I found my tribe. So to me, I would want the reader to take from, you know, if you feel like you're looking for something, then just keep looking till you find your group because you will find them. And you guys are quite the group. Seems from what I've been reading in the book that uh, bee, beekeepers are a certain kind of breed of person. It's true. I mean, if you think about it, we're people that, run towards a big giant balls of stinging insects. So that takes a unique individual. But I also say that, you know, that what a beekeeper is, I mean, at the heart of it, that we're nurturing this organism that isn't going to love us back. And so I think beekeepers make great friends because they have that nurturing gene inside of them. And you're talking about the organism as just the individual bee or as the hive? As the hive. <clears throat> that honeybees are um, what's called your social, which means that they they act as the colony acts as as the organism, which each bee kind of representing like a cell in that that body. And it seems like uh, I've heard this from other people that if you're not really bothering the bee, you're you're really not going to end up getting stung all that much. I mean, you can get stung, correct? But it, basically, it's not as a serious threat as most people would assume. Right. It's I, I. It's when I do talks, when I've done a lot of public talks, I start with a picture of a bee on my finger just to prove that if you don't bother bees, they're not going to bother you. And like I say, what, you know, when you do get stung, it's because I did something wrong or there's something wrong with the bees themselves. So what is the most important thing we should know about bees? If there's one thing that you would like to get across? May I give you two, Kevin? Okay, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I, you know, it's, I'm a little obsessed, so I got to give more than one. So no, the, <laughs> the two things are, uh, one, that honeybees and yellow jackets are two distinct breeds. It's like dogs and hyenas. They, they really have nothing in common. Honeybees are fuzzy. Yellow jackets are smooth. So fuzzy is good. Smooth is bad. And then the second thing is that one third of all the food we eat, one in every three bites, is because of the bees pollination services and they bring us that food. And without them, we wouldn't have those kind of fruits. Yeah, in fact, in the, on the book, you say that the bee could be the most important living creature on the planet. And that wasn't just me. That was actually, I want to say, uh, a year and a half ago, 
the, the, I can't remember the organization, but it was declared uh, the most important insect or in most important organism in earth. Mm -hmm. So you give us uh, the most important thing about bees, but what's the most important thing we should know about beekeepers? <laughs> <laughs> that, that they have great honey. So you should find your local beekeeper uh, and taste some of the best honey you've ever had. No, I, I think that, you know, that I always, beekeepers, you know, you hear adults saying how hard it is to make friends. But for me, like just having this community of people that they really, they really open you with uh, open arms and want you to come in the group and the talk and it, beekeepers come in all shapes and sizes. I have uh, one section in my book where I refer to them as uh, like the kid's book, Go Dog Go, you know, because of how many different types of, there isn't one type of beekeeper. They come in all shapes, sizes, you know, male, female, couple, singles. It's all, it's all just the love of the honey loving bug. And what, but what's the one common thread? I think that they're obsessed with the honeybees in one way or another, but that's just it. Like, I, I can't say that there's one personality type that likes bees, but then like at a beekeeping meeting, I'd say the one commonality is that the only thing that matters is the honeybees and what kind of beekeeper you are. So it's, it doesn't matter what, what your background is, um, you know, if you're a doctor or a bus driver, if you're, um, you know, what political party or religion you are, none of that matters in beekeeping. All that matters is, you know, how good a beekeeper you are. Right. And, but there's also one big payoff and that's honey. We know it's for me, that's a hundred percent correct. And it's funny though, that beekeeping attracts people that aren't in it for the honey. Some do it just to raise bees or, um, you know, like there's, there's people that like it to pollinate their plants. There's others that do it because there's a lot of bee gadgets and they want to try all those out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I you plant a lot of pollinating type of uh, flowers around my garden. I'm a big tomato grower. So I like bees coming around and they, they go to those flowers and then they head to my tomato plants and my squash and all the rest of the stuff. So I'm, that's why I like keeping bees around. And we thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny, like, you know, like there's some beekeepers that do it because they, they use their honey to make mead. There's other beekeepers that like to collect the wax so they can make everything from lip balm to candles. And then there's those that just, you know, want to give back to nature and, and have the bees sustain themselves without taking anything from the bees. Hmm. I want to get back to wax a little bit later um, because I, I'm curious about that. But let's go to a part of the story that recurs. And that is that you tell the story of how you got into bees a guy named the badger you want to tell us a little bit about the badger and how he sort of pops up in all your stories yeah well so how i got into beekeeping like so i i was never around bees i didn't know anybody that kept them and but there was something inside of me that always wanted to be around them so i i saw that there was a talk at the local library and i went to that talk and then i learned at that talk that there was a beekeeping club in my area which you know surprised me that there was enough other people that wanted to do bees that could sustain a club. So the president of the club was the badger. And I reached out to him after the talk, you know, and thinking he'd get back to me, you know, a couple of days later. And it was like instantaneous of him uh, emailing me about what to do. And then he really, you know, and I'm thankful for this, made it so I had to make the choice that first day, you know, are you going to get into bees or not? And because I did, then, you know, he sort of helped me along the way. But yeah, real helpful person um, to, to, to want me to get in and to bring a new 
you know, person who didn't know anything into beekeeping. But then, of course, um, he was quite the character, as the book points out, too. Yeah, he was what you call like a cowboy in the beekeeping world, which is like not interested in masks and smoke and gloves and all that stuff. He's willing to get right in there with the bees and show that he, he can withstand this thing here or there and show you how to do beekeeping the way he does it, right? There's, I guess, yeah. several different ways of doing this. Some people probably are very meticulous at protecting themselves. Yeah, and I, it's like it's almost like a spectrum. So if you had on one end the cowboy, who in addition to not wearing any type of protection, also doesn't really have a plan when they're going into the hive, so they're not doing any of the um, the pre-work before you would inspect your hives. And then on the other end of the spectrum is what I call the surgeon, where they'll be covered from head to toe before they step out of the house, and then they're like overly meticulous. And so I think, um, you know, the, the best place to be is somewhere in between those two. Uh, like I think when it comes to wearing any kind of veil, that's up to you. Um, you know, whatever it makes, if the more comfortable you are around your bees, then the better you're going to be at handling them. So dress so you're comfortable, but don't overdress so you can't, you know, can't even tell that you're touching bees. So do most people learn this uh, on the fly, like, uh, or are or, or people meticulous enough to go and find something like your club or find an expert online? But is this what happens? Are people learning this as they do it? Or are they do most people try to bone up enough and get ahead of the game by learning something or being taught it before they get into beekeeping? Well, I think, um, I think both like it's it, when I I became president of the club and a lot of what drove me were things that weren't available when I was new, meaning like, you know, I didn't even know there was a club and I didn't know um, like the right way to do things. So I established a mentoring program and, you know, had a reading list of people uh, could get books. And, you know, if you point enough people at the sources they should be looking at, the better it is for everybody. So I think it's, um, it's one of, mine and, and other beekeepers missions is to to educate on how you can find information so you do start the right way mm -hmm. can, can there be too many beekeepers hey well you know if you look there's um i want to say that there's over 1500 registered beekeepers in the city of new york really and yes so if in the five boroughs which you know clearly doesn't have as many uh, trees and plants as it would in a more rural setting. So if, if they can sustain it, then I think that we're pretty much okay anywhere. So I'm fascinated by the story of Lorenzo Langstroth and the removable comb for beehives. I'm a sort of a history buff. So when you tell me a little bit of lore about the history of beekeeping, this seems to be a significant sort of advancement for beekeeping. Yes, I, it's, it's, it's the single most important um, discovery in beekeeping and is now used across the globe. And what he discovered is that if you maintain three eighths of an inch between the combs, he calls it bee space and the bees will not connect it with combs. So think of like hallways in our house. So if bees maintain this specific sized hallway that they'll never try to build within it. And so by doing that, then you can pull out the comb and the advantage of pulling out the comb is then it allows the beekeeper to be able to inspect the bees to make sure they're healthy. And also when we extract the honey, we can do the same thing and put the comb back in. So then uh, it, it, it's better on the bees because they're not using as many resources to rebuild that comb. Mm -hmm. 
And if the honey is the food for the bee and keeps the bee alive, how do you know how much you can take? Excellent question. So where we are, Kevin, the um, bees need between 60 and 80 pounds of honey to get through the winter. And so if you think of a hive, like a filing cabinet, and then in each drawer, there's 10 file folders, and each of those file folders can hold about 10 pounds of honey, you're able to kind of do a quick calculation of how much honey is there for the bees. And then what beekeepers do is they put a different box on top. So the box that my bees will store their honey is always for them. And then I put additional ones on top that's honey for me. Ah, very clever. That's, so that's just generally universally used now. Yes. And, and part of the reason too, is that the, um, the boxes that are for the bees are bigger. So we call those deeps. And then the, the, the honey boxes we call supers because the super goes on top. Okay. So let me ask you a, a question out of left field. I've seen advertisements for a new kind of hive that has a spigot and all you do is turn it on and drain the honey out. Well, what do you think about those things? I, I was kind of suspected that there's got to be something wrong with this. Yeah. It's you're, you're, I think it's smart to be suspect. And the reason is, is that, that, that hive, I think attracts people that don't want to care for bees and bees are a living organism. And if you're going to do it right, you have to go in the hive. And so my um, line I always say about it is if it were that easy, then why don't they have a spigot on a pig to get bacon? <laughs> I think you're right. I, I knew there was a problem with this idea. It sounded like fast food honey to me. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and part of the thing, so what's interesting is that when bees bring nectar in, it can be up to 80% water. And then the bees reduce that the same as we reduce uh, maple sap to syrup, right? We have to boil off all the water. The bees are essentially doing the same thing with that nectar and they're converting it from sucrose into fructose and glucose. But by boiling it down, it's not honey till it's less than 19% moisture. And so as a beekeeper, you can look and you can see because they've capped it. So my concern with the spigot would be that if you're not looking to see if that honey is capped, then you may actually not be getting honey. You may be getting a syrupy nectar that's going to ferment and, and spoil. Yeah, we're talking to Frank Mortimer, the Frank the Bee Man. He's written a new book called Bee People and the Bugs They Love. And I'm really happy to have him here. We're learning quite a bit about bees this afternoon. Frank, since we just talked about honey, what about wax? I mean, how much wax can a bee make that somebody could, you know, cull wax from the hives and make candles? It seemed, that would seem like an awful lot of wax. So bees have to consume about eight pounds of honey to make one pound of wax. And, and bees, they have glands on their abdomens. And then the wax platelets will like come out. And um, then bees will use their mandibles to, to make the wax into the hexagons or any other shape that they need. So when, when you're using wax for candles or lip balms and things like that, that when you extract your honey, right? So when, as I was just saying that when it gets below 19%, then it's honey. And what the bees do is they know it that and they cap it, which means they cover it in wax. And it's the same reason why we would put lids on, on when we can food. So it just doesn't spill. And in their case that nobody steps in it. So when to extract the honey, you have to scrape off that wax. 
And then that's what's used in the candles and, and other th- products. So I would say you could get, I'm going to say you could get several pounds from each hive that you have when you extract your honey. Okay. And that's each year. Okay. So we've established that the bee is one of the most important creatures on the planet. So that would have to make the queen the most important of the important, don't you think? Yeah, it's I call the queen is like the heart, you know, in in like so you need that they they need the queen to survive because she's the only one with a fully active reproductive system. And instead of queen, we could also call her the mother bee because she's literally the mother of all the bees in the hive. And at the peak of a season, there can be up to 60,000 bees, which makes Mother's Day really something in a hive. (laughs) (laughs) And the queen bee, to do that, she can lay up to 2,000 eggs a day. Wow. And how many of them become bees? All of them. Like that's, all right, you know, for the sake of this, all of them. I mean, if there's an issue with one, the, the workers will take it out. But yeah, those are all to keep the population going because the worker bees, which are the type of bees that everyone's seen, they only live for six weeks. Mm-hmm. So to, to maintain that population, then the queen has to lay 2,000 eggs a day. And when do those 2,000 eggs get divided up into the categories of bees? I mean, they're right. There's workers, there's drones. What else? So there's, there's three kinds of bees. There's a queen, there's workers, and drone. And the drones are males. What's interesting, the queen decides if she's going to lay a female or a male egg. And the male eggs are actually not fertilized. So the drones are hapatoids, is what we call it. And they, ha- they serve one purpose, and that's to mate with queens. Okay. So they, they fly in, um, like, think of there's these areas that are like bee single bars up in the air called drone congregation areas. And so during the day, the drones will fly up there back and forth and wait for a unmated queen to show up. And B, you can tell the drones because they're bigger and fatter. So think of like a dad bod and they have giant eyes. So it looks like they're wearing goggles, you know, so when the queen goes up, they actually, the, it takes place up in the air. And then after the drone is done, he breaks away from her and falls to his death. And then, so that's why out of that 60,000 bees in a hive, there will be only, you know, a few thousand drones while like 57,000 would be the females, the workers. Huh. And she also produces other queens, right? Because when she starts running out of gas, I get from your book that, you know, so to speak, you know, she's her fertility rate's going down maybe, or she's just tired. She has to produce some other queens, which the bees decide which one is going to be the queen, right? They can't have more than one queen in the hive. Correct. So, so she lays a, a fertilized egg And then what happens is the workers, the nurse bees are deciding which of those eggs they're going to make into a queen. And what's interesting is um, once the egg hatches after three days, that it could still be a worker bee or a queen bee. But then what the nurse bees do is they feed that larvae differently. Like if you've heard of royal jelly, Mm -hmm. royal jelly is kind of like bees milk that's secreted from a gland in their head. So they feed that larvae differently and then they also build out the wax so it looks like um, a peanut in the shell, but it's made out of wax. And by giving that larvae different food and more room to grow, it will develop into a queen instead of a worker bee. Hmm. So briefly tell us another like wild, interesting fact about the social structure of a, a hive and all these different players. I, I think one of the coolest things is how bees communicate. 
they communicate two different ways. One is through pheromones or smells. And so everything in the hive has it is given off pheromones and that's how they kind of keep things in check. So like when you talked about like the, when the queen starts to run out of gas, then the, the, the worker bees know that because there's not as much pheromone coming from the larvae, which we call brood. Um, the second way that bees communicate is through a dance. It's called the waggle dance. And what's interesting is that they, they can do a dance that gives directions to a food source that's over three miles away. And they'll be accurate within one meter. And there's only two creatures on the planet that can give directions to food sources, bees and humans. Wow. That's fascinating. So that's a good thing to talk about now, talking about food sources. I see people say, oh, this is clover honey, or this is lavender honey, or this is oregano honey, or I even saw some guys advertising that he's got cannabis honey, that all his bees get their pollen from cannabis bushes. And so tell me about that. Do they sort of make a beeline, no pun intended, to a certain source of pollen and keep going back to that source? Or are they all over the place? They, so bees are monofluoritic. So if something's in bloom, then the bees will stay on that until it, it, it's out. And so what, what's interesting to me is from an evolutionary standpoint, when you look at how flowers and bees evolve together, and by, you know, if you think if bees were generalists going everywhere and a, and a bee had avocado pollen on it and then landed on a blueberry tree, it's not going to help the blueberry. So that's why I think that bees do stay on a plant and why we're able to use them in commercial farming. Like you look at almonds, which, you know, 80% of the world's almonds come from this one area in Northern California. And that's a $7.6 billion industry. That's a hundred percent dependent on honeybees. Wow. And that's why we don't want colony collapse disorder, right? Which is, brings us to a, one of the big negatives of what's going on right now in the bee world. I, do you, can you tell us a little bit about that? And we, we have a short amount of time. So just give us an idea about this. Is it, is it really being caused by the varroa mites or are we also seeing pressures from pesticides like neonicotinoids? So the, the number one thing that's impacting honeybees worldwide is the varroa destructor mite. And it's in addition to how the mite is sucking nutrients from the bee. It's also a vector for diseases, bee diseases. But you think of where the time we're living in now, you know, bees can't social distance. So the mite is actually bringing more viruses into colonies than it did 15, 20 years ago. So that's why they're so dangerous. But yeah, the, the, the problem is also includes pesticides. Like we say, it's the four P's that are impacting bees health, parasites, which is the mites, pathogens, the viruses, pesticides, which you hit on, and then also poor nutrition, because you know we're as we move into monoculture uh, farming, then that reduces the 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 amount of different foods that they can go to. So we need to plant more kinds of uh, flowers and plants that have uh, different kinds of pollen. In other words, exactly. Yes. Okay. We're talking to Frank Mortimer, the, the bee man. He has a new book out called "The Bee People and the Bugs They Love." You can find it on Citadel Press. 
And I would like to know now what recommendations you have for somebody listening who says, hey, I want to try this out. I'd like to be a, a beekeeper. You know, I, I thought the same thing. I went to talk to a bee. I have a little piece of property up north and it's it's in the boondock. So I have lots of scary critters around me. First thing he mentions, well, you're going to put up a solar electric fence to keep the bears out. And so that sort of ended my beekeeping wishes. because I don't want to attract bears to my property. So what do you tell people about what you have to be aware of to get started and how would they go about doing so? The number one recommendation I always have is find your local beekeeping club and everywhere in the country, there's beekeeping clubs as I, as I found out. So there definitely is one in your area. And then you'll have people there that'll give you advice on what you need to do. Like in your instance where you said like the, the getting electric fence for bears, what's interesting is they tell you to bait it with bacon so once the bear gets zapped at one time, they're never back again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just rather not have the situation. So we we now buy great honey from him. In fact, we just had some of the best honey we ever had, which he called a fall harvest. And it was so dark and rich and just delicious. Yeah, I was, it's, it's interesting that like the earlier the honey is in the spring, the lighter it is. And then the longer it is into the fall, the darker it is. And the the color and taste of honey is 100% dependent upon the flowers that the bees go to. And so it really is amazing at how subtle the differences can be or how dramatic they can be from a, a early spring to a late fall honey. Yeah, I'm, I didn't know that until, I mean, I was aware that there's different kinds of, of maple syrup, you know, and I tend to like the darker and heavier stuff. I just do. And this honey was just spectacular. I really, we're, we're totally going to buy more fall honey now because we've had this experience of how just rich it tastes. And, and for those that really haven't experienced honey, it is fun. Like what I like to do is I'll have a tasting of a spring honey, a fall honey. And then I also, like I'll bring in uh, like up to three or four of my honey, and then I'll buy one in store honey. And once you taste local honey and then taste store honey at the same time, it'll blow your mind because it's kind of like you talked about maple syrup. If you get real hundred percent maple syrup from Vermont or, or wherever, and then try, you know, the stuff that you buy at the store, <laughs> that's uh, you can really tell what's real and what's not. And the same is true with honey. Yeah, I saw a documentary about, um, you know, the, the watering down of honey, too. It's like a big problem, I understand. You feel that is the case that the people are they're adding sugar or sugar water to honey and making it, uh, you know, thinner so that they can make more money on the honey they're selling. If, if you look at the price of local honey versus what how inexpensive the stuff they sell in, in large stores is, then there's no way that what you're buying it cheaply is 100 percent honey. So. That's why you should always go to the local beekeeper because, you know, the, the, the expression is know, know your beekeeper because then you know where the, the honey's coming from. And so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, that I've seen articles that say honey is one of the top counterfeit foods, you know, with like olive oil. It's just it's all this counterfeit food in both cases because it's diluted with lesser ingredients. Sure. I see what you're saying. So what, what would we just say briefly? What is the biggest mistake a newbie would make when starting out? I would say that the number one mistake is thinking they know all the answers. One of the, the great things about beekeeping is no matter how much you know, the bees are always going to show you that you don't know everything. <laughs> Same so, with gardening. <laughs> yeah. So you have to kind of go into it knowing that this is a lifelong uh, process of, of always taking in new information. And I would tell new people, don't get discouraged. You know, it's 
that, that part of the adventure of beekeeping is is you're you're never sure what's going to happen every time you open that the lid of the hive. Mm-hmm. So go join a club, find people that are doing it already, and then you can decide. I mean, I guess I would imagine that you buy a what, what they call a nuke, right? Which is the queen and some bees or in some yes. Yeah, and so they would direct you in the right direction for that kind of stuff, and and whether or not to buy a kit, for instance, and or or buy pieces and better stuff, and I'm sure there's a whole ramification going on there. Yeah, and that's like, and because you know the old expression, you learn from your mistakes. That's why with my book, I detailed all the mistakes I made, hoping that I can have <laughs> legions of people that learn from my mistakes, so they don't have to make them. And you killed your first hive, right? <laughs> you lost it anyway. Yes, I, I did. I did lose it. And and it's because I, I didn't really know what I was doing. And as most books tell you, you should start with two hives, not one. And I detail all that so people understand in the book why, why, why that is. It's always a learning process, right? You have learned from your mistakes. Yes. And so, beekeepers make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. So we're talking to Frank Mortimer, the bee man. He has a great new book called The Bee People and the Bugs They Love. It's got a great extensive glossary in it on bee terms. If you want to look into that, if you're one of those people who like to study up. And it also has a great list of reading material that's um, listed in the back of the book as well. It's a, it's a, a really nice personal book, Frank. Uh, you should be proud of it. And just briefly tell them where they can find more information if they wanted to. My website is uh, frankthebeeman.com. And uh, also the book is available anywhere you buy books. You can go to your local bookstore, which is what I recommend. And it's also available on the online stores as well. Thanks for coming on, Digging in the Dirt. Thank you so much, Kevin. And uh, have a good day to you and your listeners. Thanks for coming on, Digging in the Dirt. Digging in the dirt Digging in the dirt You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. To hear past programs anytime you want, visit the podcast section of WPKN.org or diggingindedirtradio.com. <laughs>